Well, uh, before we begin the study of the Word of God, let's take an opportunity to uh, confess any sins. Remember 1 John 1, 9, God uh, promises us through the, through the Apostle John that if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. It's important to remember that because we're sinners and it's easy just to keep trucking along and forget that reality. And so it's important to confess our sins, to be restored to fellowship, to be restored to the filling of the Spirit, especially when we study the Word of God, because the Spirit makes God's Word clear and perspicuous to us. So let's take a moment of silent prayer. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to gather to study your word. We ask that you encourage us by it. We ask that you open our eyes to your divine absolute truth. And we ask that you transform us by it. Give us excitement for your word as if it is the last time that we will study it. That we may go forth from here and be your agents be your representatives in a lost and dying world. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Last time we finished chapter 12 of 1 Samuel, and what we've seen so far is that Saul has been anointed king. The people have embraced Saul as the new and first king of the nation of Israel, and this embracing of Saul really follows the military victory that, the decisive military victory that God gave Saul when Saul beat the Ammonites in chapter 11 and Saul himself recognized that it was God who gave the victory. Samuel has passed the baton of political power from Samuel to Saul because Samuel is no longer a judge. The era of the judges finished with chapter 12 and the era of the kings has begun. Remember, Saul, Samuel is both is, has three hats that he wears. Judge, priest, and prophet. He no longer wear, wears the judge hat. The judge hat was a really more of a political power hat, but he's passed that political baton to the new king, to Saul. He will remain as priest and prophet. What we're going to see tonight in chapter 13 is that things are not going to go so well for Saul. Saul will forget that God provides the victory. Saul will disrespect God, and the Israelites will suffer because of it. Let's begin with verse 1 of chapter 13. There we read, Saul was 30 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 42 years over Israel. Right up front, very first verse of chapter 13, we get confronted with two difficult textual issues. Difficult textual issues in the Hebrew. Notice the two words in your text that are italicized. If you're reading from the NASB, the word 30 and the word 40 are italicized. And so the Hebrew text literally reads like this. Saul was a son, was a son of a year, meaning he was one year old when he became king, and he reigned two years over Israel. Rutro. 
we have a problem, right? We actually have two problems here. Issue number one is obviously Saul was not running around in diapers when he was on the throne. He's not one year old when he begins to reign. Somewhere, somehow along the way, a Hebrew scribe made a mistake. And so some of the Septuagint translations, remember the Septuagint is the Greek, it's, it's when, the, when, the, when the Hebrew religious leaders who also were experts in Greek two or three centuries before Christ, so um, 200 B.C., 300 B.C., when they, they got together and they translated the Hebrew Scriptures into Greek. Well, some of those Greek translations, it's called the Septuagint, the, it uses the, the, the Roman numerical um, initials LXX for 70 because the, the tradition was that it was 70 scholars, whether that tradition is true or not, we don't know. But the Septuagint... There are multiple translations of the Septuagint, multiple Greek manuscripts that translate the Hebrew text. Well, some of those Greek manuscripts, the the, the manuscripts of the Septuagint, have instead of was one-year-old, they say he was 30 years old. And that's why our English translation, if you're reading from the NASB, has the word 30, but it has it in italics because our English translators are signaling to us that's not actually in the Hebrew text, and that's why they put it in italics. Our English translators are borrowing or are assuming that the Septuagint use of the word 30, because everybody knows it can't be one, our English translate, translators are assuming that the Septuagint, or at least using the Septuagint as the basis for that 30 number. But I think there's some problems with the 30 number in itself. Because in verse 2, we're going to see that Saul's son, his oldest son, Jonathan, is a military leader. He leads a thousand troops. So if you do the math, and the, and the, way, the way the Hebrew works here, the beginning of verse 2 is tied to verse 1. In other words, this is, this is sequential. It's not like verse 1 is just a statement, and then verse 2 happens some, it, it, some later date untied to it. No, verse 2 is tied to verse 1. These are events that are happening sequentially. And so if verse 2 tells us that Saul's oldest son, Jonathan, is a military leader of a thousand troops, we have an issue with 30. Because that means that, you know, if Saul had Jonathan when he was, you know, they married young back then, let's say 17 years old, 18 years old, then that would make Jonathan 12 years old, 13 years old, leading a thousand troops? Not very likely. So some theologians, when they analyze this, they conclude really it's more like 40. And they would use 40 in order to account for the difference between the age difference between Saul and Jonathan. 40 seems to be an acceptable solution But really, in the end, we're guessing because there is an error in the text. Now, as soon as I I say there's an error in the text, I don't mean to suggest that the text is inerrant. That's an impossibility because all Scripture is God-breathed. 
and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be, may be mature, thoroughly furnished under all good works. The Scripture itself is inerrant. And when we, when we talk about the doctrine of inerrancy, we're talking about the original manuscripts, when God the Holy Spirit moved the writer to record the words of God, the original manuscripts. We don't know, at least let, let, let's say for the New Testament, we don't know if we have the, the original manuscripts. We have thousands of manuscripts or portions of manuscripts with, with respect to the New Testament. It's possible that one of those in the New Testament, a Greek manuscript, is the original. Not likely, but possible. We know we don't have the originals of the Old Testament because they were written on tablets or on scrolls and no one pulls out their scroll. Even when you go to synagogue, they'll have the scrolls there, but those aren't the original scrolls that were written thousands of years ago. But what we do have are copies and the copies corroborate one another. And because there are all these copies, I'm talking about Old Testament and New Testament, because there are all these copies that validate one another but for some random errors like this, because the copies validate one another, they show what the original had to have been. And so when my atheist friend, who's always trying to play a game of gotcha, he's always looking for something to say, see, there's a problem with the text. And really what he's saying is, see, I don't want to believe. I don't want to be held accountable because if I have to trust Christ, that means I have, to be, I have to acknowledge that I'm a sinner and I need him. That's really where he's going with that, as much as I love my atheist lawyer friend. That's really where he's going. But his argument is bogus. It doesn't hold any water if he hangs his hat on this. In general, his argument is bogus because there are no errors in the Scripture. There are mistakes that some of the scribes may have done this is a mistake. We should readily acknowledge it as a mistake. There are other mistakes that are inconsequential from a doctrinal standpoint. Right? A mistake like this has zero impact on the sovereignty of God, on the righteousness of God, on the integrity of God, on the holiness of God, on the omniscience of God. All of the doctrines, all of which we will see as we go through this book. And so what I want you to see is that when the History Channel, or A&E, or whatever they call the History Channel now, when they come out with these theologians, I put in air quotes, and they say, yes, there are errors in the Scripture, but, you know, it's, 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 it's a good, it, they're, they're good stories, but the Scripture is not inerrant. You should automatically think hogwash. Do we have errors in the transmission? Yes, we do. Because they didn't have Xerox machines back then. They didn't have iPhones. You just click and you have a perfect image. But those errors, actually, in my mind, they validate how amazing God is. Because they didn't have Xerox machines. And so God, in His great sovereignty, recorded the Scripture over thousands of years with multiple manuscripts and those manuscripts confirm, validate one another. Therefore, they prove the original. And they have minor errors that have no impact on any doctrinal point. On any doctrinal point that is of any significance. So we have an issue. Saul was not a baby. was not one year old when he took the throne.
So we have to come up with some other number, whether it's 30 or whether it's 40. In the end, it doesn't really matter because it has no impact on any doctrinal issues. The second textual issue that we see in verse 1 is the end of verse 1. It says in the Hebrew, he reigned two years over Israel, meaning Saul reigned two years over Israel. Now we know that Saul reigned way more than that. The apostle Paul said in Acts 13, 21, that Saul, that Saul reigned for 40 years. Saul, excuse me, Paul, the Apostle Paul is probably, which, which was common in ancient texts, probably rounding, you know, whether it was 39 years, 38 years, rounding was, was common in ancient texts. We round even today. And so what many people do is they conclude, many translations conclude that a scribe mistakenly dropped off the 40. And so you read here 42. 40 in the italics and 2 in regular font in your Bible, which would fit a rounding of 40. 38 rounds to 40, 42 rounds to 40. And so what happens in Hebrew, unlike in English, we use Arabic numerals, one, two, three, four. They're, they're digits. That's not the way it is in Hebrew. In Hebrew, they're letters. And so when you have, if you drop off a letter, you can make a huge difference, a, a significant change in the actual number. Well, that's why you see sometimes errors when it comes to scribes recording these or, or, or making a copy of the, of the earlier uh, manuscripts, it's easy to make an error on a number in Hebrew because it's not based on numerical Arabic di digits like we have. All that being said, I don't think we have an error. I don't think we have an error in this second issue when it says Saul reigned, he reigned two years over Israel. I don't think we have to assume a mistake by a scribe I think what the writer of for Samuel is telling us is that we're in the timeline of Saul's reign. Saul has reigned for two years. And now some events are going to happen after he's reigned for two years. I think that's all that's happening here. And so I don't feel obligated like the NASB translators to insert 40 here because I think what's happening is the writer of 1 Samuel is telling us that Saul has reigned for two years over Israel. So far, in those two years, a number of events happened, including the, Saul's war with the Ammonites. And now, in verse 2, we're going to get to what has happened in year 3 and beyond. I think it's just a time marker for us. It's not saying that Saul only reigned two years. It's saying that Saul reigned two years, and now we're going to get the events that happen after year number two. So let's keep reading in verse 2 of chapter 13. We're told this, Now Saul chose for himself 3,000 men of Israel, of which 2,000 were with Saul in Michmash and in the hill country of Bethel, while 1,000 were with Jonathan at Gibeah of Benjamin. But he sent away the rest of the people, each to his tent. This is the first time that Jonathan is mentioned in the Scripture. As I, as I noted a moment ago, Jonathan is the oldest son of Saul. His name means Yahweh gave or Yahweh has given. 
Saul is raising up an army to dislodge the Philistines from Israelite territory. And so what we have here on the screen is a, a kind of a map of, of the area. And in verse 2, a, a thousand troops are under Jonathan's command at Gibeah. Gibeah, remember, is Saul's hometown. Gibeah is the capital. And so Jonathan is commanding a thousand troops at Gibeah. Saul is at Michmash, not too far from Gibeah. Michmash is about four and a half miles or so northeast of Gibeah. And Saul is commanding 2,000 troops there. Then we get to verse 3. Jonathan smote the garrison of the Philistines that was in Geba. And the Philistines heard of it. Then Saul blew the trumpet throughout the land saying, Let the Hebrews hear. So with Geba, Geba is right here. You can just kind of barely see it. So Jonathan had his thousand troops at Gibeah. He moves to Geba, which, where there is a garrison of the Philistines. He attacks them. Saul is with his 2,000 troops here at Michmash. What is so scary for the Israelites is that in the heart of Jewish territory, Geba, there is a Philistine garrison. It shows how entrenched the Philistines were and how much they dominated the region even in the middle of Jewish territory. In verse 3, Jonathan routs the Philistines. This is Israel's only military victory in chapter 13. It's going to all go south from here. Jonathan, not Saul, will be the bright spot in this chapter. Jonathan is a very courageous man. His defeat of the Philistines begins the war. And that's why you see here in verse 3 that the Philistines heard of it. That's a way of saying they're, they're, they're calling their troops. They're summoning their troops because they heard that Jonathan had struck them, had defeated them at Geba. Saul does the same thing by blowing the trumpet. It says that, now that Saul probably himself didn't blow the trumpet. He had men who would do it. But it says, Saul, let the Hebrews hear. It doesn't say, Saul, let the Jews hear. They're called the Hebrews here. The term Jew doesn't show up in Scripture until much later. The term Jew is a term that is used late in Israel's history. It shows up about 1,400 years after the first Jew, after Abraham. And so, really, it comes from the divided kingdom, right? Abraham is the first of the Jews, and then Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Jacob goes to, uh, goes to Egypt with his family. First, his son Joseph goes there, and then, and then uh, Jacob with the family goes to Egypt. They're in slavery for 400 years. Then they're out of slavery. They make their way into the land, and then for centuries, they, they live in the land. Then, that's the time of the judges. Then there's the king, King Saul, then King David, then then. King Solomon, then Rehoboam, the kingdom splits under Rehoboam, the northern kingdom. They take the name Israel, the southern kingdom, they take the name Judah. Judah is where the name Jew comes from. But even then, it took time. The kingdom splits around 1,000-ish, roughly, let's say, let's say more in the, 
the 900s, the late 900s. The northern kingdom, Israel, has to be destroyed first. That's so a couple centuries later, 722 B.C., by the Assyrians. Then you have the only remaining kingdom of the Hebrews, or the Israelites, is the kingdom called Judah. And so after that time, the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob became, became, it came to be called Jews, meaning of Judah. And so right around, actually even, even two centuries later, it's not until, or let's say a century and a half later, it's not until the, the late 600s that you hear the, or you find in the scripture the term Jew. It's in, the first time it appears is 2 Kings 25, 25, which is near the Babylonian conquest. Unlike the term Jew, the term Hebrew is found very early in the scriptures. Genesis 14, 13 refers to Abraham as Ab- Abram. Remember, he's, his name is first Abram, and then God renames him father of many nations, Abraham. But in Genesis 14, 13, Abram is called the Hebrew. This is the, the word for Hebrew is the Hebrew word Ivri. And so then what happens is, as, as you study the word Hebrew, you say, okay, where did that come from? Abram is called Hebrew, a Hebrew, the Hebrew, and uh, Jacob and Joseph, they're called Hebrews. Remember, the Egyptians don't eat with the Hebrews. And Potiphar's wife says, this Hebrew, she frames Joseph, and she says, this Hebrew assaulted, sexually, assaulted me and tried to sexually assault me. Right? She calls him a Hebrew. And the Egyptians call Jacob and, and the family Hebrews. They don't eat with the Hebrews. Well, where does the word Hebrew come from the 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 word ivri we don't have an answer to that we don't have a definitive answer to that some believe it may have come from abraham's ancestor which is the the in, in the english we'd say eber genesis 10:21 or in the hebrew you'd say you'd say aver some believe it can, comes from the hebrew verb avar which means to cross over Abram crossed over into the promised land. And people believe, you know, we kind of speculate that that's where the word Hebrew comes from because all of these names have the same three Hebrew letters. They have the Ein, the Bet, and the Resh. So all of these names, all these words, Ein, Bet, Resh, Ein, Bet, Resh, Ein, bet, resh. The ein is the y, the bet is a kind of a backwards-looking two, and the resh is a backward-looking r. They all have the same core three consonants. These dots are vowels that the Masoretes came in and put, put vowels in in the, in the Middle Ages. So this is where we speculate that the word Hebrew came from, but we cannot say definitively that's just a little kind of side trip into the uh, the term hebrew versus the term jew let's keep reading in verse four all israel heard the news that saul had smitten the garrison of the philistines and also that israel had become odious to the philistines the people were then summoned to saul at gilgal you see something odd here 
You notice something odd in verse 4? There's something strange happening. Why is the word on the street that Saul smote, that Saul struck the Philistines? That's not what happened. Jonathan struck the Philistines. Now, maybe that's because everybody knew that Jonathan was Saul's son and he's a commander in his kingdom and he's acting on behalf of Saul. Or maybe it's because Saul is taking credit for Jonathan's victory himself. Maybe we're seeing Saul's pride show. By the end of the chapter, we'll see his pride show very clearly. In any event, Saul has the people gather at Gilgal. And so Gilgal, here on the map, is over close to the, this is the Jordan River. It's over here, close to um, kind of, kind of east, a little bit farther east. Gibeah is the cap, capital. We already saw Geba, we saw Michmash. And so, so Saul has the troops, has the Israelites' troops, the Hebrew troops, gather there at Gilgal. Keep reading in verse 5. Now the Philistines assembled to fight with Israel, 30,000 chariots and 6,000 horsemen, and people like the sand which is on the seashore in abundance. And they came up and camped in Michmash, east of Beth-Avon. When the men of Israel saw that they were in a strait, meaning they're in a tough spot, for the people were hard-pressed, then the people hid themselves in caves, in thickets, in cliffs, in cellars, and in pits, Also, some of the Hebrews crossed the Jordan into the land of Gad and Gilead. But as for Saul, he was still in Gilgal, and all the people followed him, trembling. This generation of the Israelites has never seen anything like this. They have never seen an invading army of this size. They're terrified, so some of them hide in the rocks, in the cliffs. Some of them flee east to the to the other side of the Jordan, that's this reference to Gad and Gilead, and others take shelter with Saul at Gilgal. Fear has gripped the Israelites, and so the army is falling apart. It's dissipating. This is similar to the time of Gideon in Judges 6 and 7, when, where we see the last time that anything similar to this has ever occurred. In Judges 6 and 7, the invading armies caused the Israelites to hide in the cave. And in, in, in they kind of holed up. They were, they were hiding in caves and in rocks almost like animals. Same thing that we're seeing here. The invading army in Judges 6 and 7 was described as being as numerous as the sand of the seashore. Same thing that we're seeing in chapter 13. But back in Judges, God used Gideon's faith to take an army of 300 to defeat an army of 135,000 invaders. Sadly, Saul will not have the same faith as Gideon. Keep reading in verse 8. Now he waited seven days according to the appointed time set by Samuel. But Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and the people were scattering from him. So Saul said, bring to me the burnt offering and the peace offerings. And he offered the burnt offering. Samuel had earlier told Saul to go to Gilgal and to wait for him. This was back in, verse 10, in chapter 10, verse 8. Samuel says, And you shall go down before me to Gilgal, and behold, 
I will come down to you to offer burnt offerings and sacrifice peace offerings. You shall wait seven days until I come to you and show you what you should do. Very, very, very important instruction from Samuel, from the prophet of God. These are the words of God that God delivered to Samuel for Samuel to deliver to Saul. Saul went to Gilgal as instructed, and he waited. But Samuel was late. Samuel didn't show up in the seven days, so Saul gets impatient. Saul sees his army dissolving. Saul sees the Philistine army gathering in strength, and he panics. He knew that they were supposed to offer sacrifices before they go into battle, so he takes matter, matters into his own hands. His army is deserting. He doesn't want his army to desert. He wants to engage the enemy, but he knows we're supposed to offer sacrifices first. Samuel's not here to offer the sacrifices. I showed up here in Gilgal. He didn't show up. He's not on time. I got to do something. And so Saul panics. Keep reading in verse 10. As soon as he finished offering the burnt offering, behold, Samuel came, and, Samuel, and Saul went out to meet Kim and greet him. Literally in the Hebrew, went out to bless him. To bless him. Verse 11. But Samuel said, what have you done? And Saul said, because I saw that the people were scattering from me and that you did not come within the appointed days and that the Philistines were assembling at Michmash, therefore I said, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal and I have not asked the favor of the Lord. So I forced myself and offered the burnt offering. Big mistake. Saul will suffer great consequences because he refused to wait on the Lord. If he had just waited a few more minutes, Samuel would have been there. I mean, you see that in verse 10. It says, as soon as Saul finished, Samuel came. I believe that God caused Samuel to be late, to not make the appointment, to not be there on the seventh day. Because God was testing Saul. You see, testing reveals who we are. When someone goes through adversity and they perform horribly or they perform great, some people say, boy, that person, that, that, that difficulty, that test, that adversity, that made that person such a great leader. That made that person a disaster. No, it didn't. They were already great they were already a mess before the adversity hit. All the adversity did was reveal it. Because testing reveals how we think. This testing reveals how Saul thought. This testing reveals that Saul was prideful, that he didn't care about God's will, and that he was disrespectful towards God. Saul disrespected God three ways here, at least three ways. Way number one, is he pridefully took that which was not his. He took authority that belonged to the priest, that belonged to another, and he assumed it for himself. Only the priests were authorized to offer sacrifices under the Mosaic law. Not the king, not anyone else. Samuel is in a unique position. It's actually the Aaronic priests who are authorized, not the Levitical priests. Samuel is a Levite, we know from chapter 1, He's a descendant of a Levite. He's a Levitical priest. 
but he's also a, the first of the prophets. And so Samuel's in a very unique position. That's why he's authorized to, by God to, to offer sacrifices. But it's a very serious offense for anyone, even a king, to overreach and to take what belongs to the priests. The godly king Uzziah would do this some centuries later. Uzziah was, was a godly king, a good king. But he overstepped his bounds. He took that which was the province of the priests. And what happens is when someone takes authority that belongs to someone else, it's an offense to the one who gave the authority in the first place. And so King Uzziah, God will strike him down with leprosy when he would burn incense in the temple. You can read about that in Second Chronicles 26, even though Uzziah was a godly king. But God struck him with leprosy for the rest of his life because he overstepped his bounds. Saul here oversteps his authority. Samuel didn't say, if I'm late, you go ahead and make the sacrifices. Samuel wouldn't even have had the authority to make a statement like that because only God could make exceptions to the law. So disrespect number one that Saul issued towards God was that he pridefully took that which was not his he took what was the responsibility of the priests. The second way that he disrespected God is he treated God's law as if it were a good luck charm, very similar to the way the Israelites treated the Ark of the Covenant back in chapter 4 when they called for the Ark to be brought to the battle with the Philistines because they felt that the Ark would give them some magic mojo. Saul thought, as long as I go through the motions of religious activity, God will show me favor. God will bless me. What Saul failed to realize is that God values obedience more than ritual. Right? Many in Christianity today go through the ritual. We're going to church. Going to church on Sunday. Going to, to this ritual. Going to this religious activity. God values obedience much more than he values ritual. Am I, am I saying that ritual is meaningless? No. There are two rituals that God has given in the church age, and that is water baptism and the communion table. Those are meaningful rituals. But what God values most is obedience. Samuel says this to Saul in verse 22 of chapter 15. Has the Lord as much delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord. Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, is better than sacrifice, and to heed than the fat of rams. Saul disrespected God by treating God's law and God's rituals and religious activity as some sort of magic talisman. The third way that Saul disrespected God is that he refused to trust him. He lived by sight but not by faith. The phrase at the beginning of verse 11 says it all. The beginning of verse 11 where Samuel rebukes him, what does Saul say when he's giving the excuse? He says, because I saw, because I saw the Philistines gathering their army, because I saw my troops scattering, because I saw that you were late, he thought, that if his army dwindled, then the bigger Philistine army would win. 
So he needed to do something, and he needed to do something immediately. But God is the one who provides victory, regardless of the size of the army. Isaiah 31, 1, Woe to those who go down to Egypt for help and rely on horses and trust in chariots because they are many, and in horsemen because they are very strong. But they do not look to the Holy One of Israel nor seek the Lord. Saul had forgotten. He'd forgotten how God had delivered Israel from the hand of Pharaoh's many, many chariots. Saul had forgotten how God had delivered Israel into the hands of Gideon with his tiny army of 300. Saul had forgotten how God had delivered the Ammonites into Saul's hands himself in chapter 11 because Saul lives by sight and not by faith. So here comes the punishment. Verse 13. Samuel said to Saul, You have acted foolishly. You have not kept the commandment of the Lord your God, which he commanded you. For now the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. Saul acted foolishly, Samuel says, meaning sinfully, because he disobeyed God's prophet, Samuel. And Samuel says he did not keep God's mitzvah, God's commandment. You ever heard of a bar mitzvah? The son of the commandment? When a Jewish boy is 12, 13, he's, he reaches, uh, he's, he's reaching um, manhood and he's coming of age. They have a bar mitzvah. Now bar, the word bar is actually Aramaic. If you, you wanted to use the, the Hebrew, it would be bain mitzvah. But the, the Jews have, have incorporated Aramaic terms. Remember, Aramaic was the language that they picked up from the Babylonian exile. And they, they, they used this term bar mitzvah, son of the covenant, or son of the commandment, I should say. And it's the same, same Hebrew word that is being used here. Saul is not a son of the commandment. Saul disregards the commandment of God. He disobeys it. Samuel says, if you had obeyed it, then God would have established your kingly line forever. You see that language in verse 13? The Lord would have, at the end of verse 13, the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. That's kind of odd. How does that work? Because Genesis 49.10 says that the Messiah will be through the line of Judah. So did God... Is God telling Samuel to tell Saul that it's David who's, who, who, who this is pointing to, so, so let me just remove any suspense here. Is Saul being told by Samuel that because you failed, God is now going to fulfill the prophecy in Genesis 49.10? that the Messiah is going to go through Judah. But if you had obeyed, then that prophecy never would have been fulfilled. In other words, is the prophecy in Genesis 49.10 that Messiah will come through Judah, is it conditional? Is it conditioned on Saul obeying the mitzvah, obeying the commandment? No, that's not what's being said here. Because Genesis 49.10 is not a conditional prophecy. It will come through, the Messiah will come through Judah, period, without any condition. What's happening here in verse 13 is that 
God is saying, I would have blessed you incredibly. We don't know exactly how this kingly line forever would have worked if Saul had obeyed. Messiah was prophesied to come through the tribe of Judah, and there was nothing that would ever stop that. Maybe God would have allowed Saul's descendants to rule in a Jewish kingdom that was separate from Judah. We don't know. That was Dwight Pentecost's view. Pentecost said, had this Benjamite obeyed, he would have reigned in a parallel kingdom with the king of Judah. We don't know. What we do know is that Saul did not obey. And so the dynasty that could have been, perhaps parallel with a, with a dynasty through Judah, that the dynasty that could have been is now non-existent. And this is very sad because Saul's son, Jonathan, who's, who, we're, who we're seeing here in, in chapter 13, and we'll see his, his great courage in chapter 14. He's a great leader, but he will never sit on the throne. God gives us the freedom to choose for him or to choose against him. God gives us the freedom to sin or not to sin. But what God does not give us is the freedom to choose the consequences of our sin. He chooses that. And the consequences that he has chosen for Saul are very significant. You may think that these consequences are severe. I mean, after all, Samuel was late. You may think that the crime doesn't fit the punishment. Don't think that. Please don't think that. It's sinful for the creature to judge the Creator. Every day of the week and twice on Sunday, we must never assume that which is the exclusive province of God. God alone is righteous. God alone is sovereign. God alone knows all the facts, which is to say God alone is omniscient. His judgments are always righteous. When a leader sins, in this case a king, consequences from God are severe because God is communicating to the rest that no one is exempt from responsibility before God. Jesus said in Luke 12, 47, to whom much is given, much is required. Much was given to the king and much was required from the king. And the, the great irony, the sadness, is that God would have given this great blessing to Saul if Saul had not been a man who distrusted God, a man who would not do God's will. Keep reading in verse 14. But now your kingdom shall not endure. God will allow Saul to reign for many more years. Many, many, many more years. But eventually he will lose his kingdom, he will lose his crown, and he will lose his head. And all of this will be at the hands of the Philistines. Keep reading in verse 14. The Lord has sought out for himself a man after his own heart. And the Lord has appointed him as ruler over his people. Because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. Here we see this beautiful phrase, after the Lord's own heart, after his heart. The word for heart is levav, and it's very similar to the Hebrew word lev. These words mean the inner person. The, the, it's, it's the idea of the seat of emotions, the mind, the will. In this context, it means purpose or will. It's similar to Psalm 20, verse 4, where the psalmist says, May He, may God, grant your heart's desire 
and bring all your plans to pass. That's, that's a, a reading from the NET translation. Samuel is saying that God has selected a ruler who will seek God's will, unlike you, Saul. You're not interested in God's will. And so God has selected a ruler who is not a ruler who is sinless, not a ruler who is perfect, but a ruler, a man who by and large will live and rule in submission to God. Of course, Samuel is speaking about David, whom the Lord has already chosen. The apostle Paul described the situation this way when he preached at the synagogue in Antioch in Acts 13, 21. Saul, uh, Saul. Paul said this, Then they asked for a king, and God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. After he had removed him, after God had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, concerning whom he also testified and said, I have found David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart, who will do all my will. Through David, God would establish a kingdom in the line of Judah that would reign Israel forever and ever and ever, and not just reign Israel, but reign the entire universe. This is why the descendant of David, Jesus, is called King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Revelation 19 says that that is what is written on his thigh, on the robe of his thigh. I think I misspoke last time. Two, two, there are two titles. There are multiple titles for Jesus in Revelation 19. The two that I mentioned last time are the Word of God and King of Kings, Lord of Lords. It's not the Word of God that is written on the thigh of His robe. It is King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And the reason it's written on the thigh is because when a horseman appears, you see the thigh first because his thighs are coming towards you. That's the imagery of Revelation 19 when Jesus cracks open the sky and returns on a heavenly horse. This is what the Bible is marching towards, and we're just getting a little glimpse of it here in chapter 13. It's pointing to the Davidic kingdom and the Davidic king, and we see this unfold just in glimpses as the book of Samuel continues. In verse 15, we read this, Then Samuel arose and went up from Gilgal to Gibeah of Benjamin. Samuel just leaves. Goodbye. Adios. No instruction. Remember back in the passage in chapter 10, verse 8, where Samuel said, I will show you what to do? Not anymore. Saul received no instruction because Saul wasn't interested from, with respect to instruction from Samuel. What we're seeing here is the separation. This is the separation between Saul and God, between Saul and God's messenger, God's prophet Samuel. Notice there's no confession. There's no acknowledgement by Saul where Saul says, Samuel, I did wrong. There's no acknowledgement of wrongdoing. There's no confession. There's no repentance. Saul just keeps on la la la, just keeps on trucking because Saul wants to do what Saul wants to do. He is a man who lives by sight, not by faith. Keep reading in verse 15. And Samuel numbered the people, excuse me, and Saul numbered the people who were present with him, about 600 men. 
Now Saul and his son Jonathan and the people who were present with them were staying in Geba of Benjamin while the Philistines camped at Michmash. Saul's army is now a fraction of what it was at the beginning of the chapter. In verse 2, it was 3,000 men. Now it's 600 men. And Saul is holed up in Geba with his army and Jonathan. Remember, Geba is the town not that Saul took, but that Jonathan took. Saul has already given up the town that he had. He doesn't have Michmash anymore. He had Michmash. He controlled Michmash in verse 2. But now the Philistines controlled Michmash. Saul has squandered the victory, and the Philistines remain in control of the region. Keep reading in verse 17. And the raiders came from the camp of the Philistines in three companies. One company turned toward Afra to the land of Shual, and another company turned toward Betharon, and another company turned toward the border which overlooks the valley of Zeboim toward the wilderness. The Philistines, by sending their raiders out, are communicating just in case there was any confusion, Jews. Just in case you were confused because Jonathan took Geba early in the chapter, we're in charge. That's why they send their raiders out to dominate the region. They send their soldiers out to raid. And what's happening is they control the territory. The Philistines control the territory at will. And they're very close to the capital itself, to, to Gibeah. All of this activity is occurring kind of in the, in the region of Gibeah, next to Gibeah. So, so the Philistines are at Michmash. There's, see these arrows here? They're sending out their raiders this way. Look how close Gibeah is. It's just, just a, a, matter of, a, a, a matter of miles in terms of proximity to the, to the huge force of Philistines that are gathered there at Michmash. Then we keep reading in verse 19. Now, no blacksmith could be found in all of the land of Israel. For the Philistines said, otherwise the Hebrews will make swords or spears. So all Israel went down to the Philistines, each to sharpen his plowshare, his mattock, his axe, and his hoe. The charge was two-thirds of a shekel for the plowshares, the mattocks, the forks, and the axes, and to fix the hoes. So it came about on the day of battle that neither sword nor spear was found in the hands of any of the people who were with Saul and Jonathan, but they were found with Saul and his son Jonathan. And the garrison of the Philistines went out to the pass at Michmash. The Philistines have a huge technological weaponry advantage. They're metal smithers. They're smiths, and they can do metal works. The Israelites can't, at least not in this, in, in this era. David, that will change under David's reign, but this is Saul's reign, and so the Israelites are at a huge disadvantage. They're very vulnerable. They can't even make their own agricultural tools, their hoes, their plowshares. They have to buy them from others, right? The, the, the plowshare is like a... It's, it's like a sickle, right? You've got a, a, a long staff of wood, and then you've got the blade on the top. Well, they've got to get, it, get the blade from someone else, and then when the blade is dulled, they've got to go to the Philistines because they don't have metal working. The Israelites don't. They've got to go to the Philistines and have the Philistines sharpen it for them. 
agricultural tools. And so obviously, the Philistines are not going to give them weapons. They're beholden to their enemy. Kind of the way, you know, we get our, our medicine from China. And when we do something China doesn't like, they threaten to take away our medicine. Same sort of idea. Only the wealthy had weapons, like the king and the son. This is part of what gave the Philistines their dominance over the region, and it's part of what instilled fear in the Israelites. But of course, in the end, victory lies in the hands of God. It doesn't lie in the hand of sophisticated technological weaponry. It doesn't lie in the hand of great generals or large armies. And a few chapters from now, a little teenager will say it well as he stands before a giant. In 1 Samuel 17, verse 45, David said to the Philistines, You come to me with a sword, a spear, and a javelin, but I come to you in the name of Yahweh Sabaoth, the Lord of the armies, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have taunted. This day Yahweh will deliver you up into my hands, and I will strike you down and remove your head from you. And I will give the dead bodies of the army of the Philistines this day to the birds of the sky and the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel, and that all this assembly may know that Yahweh does not deliver by sword or by spear, for the battle is Yahweh's, and he will give you into our hands. The book of Samuel is crying out for a leader like David. And soon we will see him because Saul is not the leader who will have the kingdom. It's David and David's progeny who will have the kingdom. Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the opportunity to gather. We ask that you help us understand your, your word. Guide us by it. We pray for our nation. We ask that you would give us a revival. We ask that you would help our leaders obey you. To the extent they're wicked, we ask that you restrain them. And to the extent they're holy, we ask that you empower them. We pray for our community, that you would give us peace, that you would give us rain. We need it. And we pray for this church, that you would Strengthen us and give us encouragement to walk in your ways and to live your truth, the only truth. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.